Several days ago, at least as of this filming, China was experiencing its biggest protests since June of 1989, uh, fueled by a few things. One of them is news spread over social media that between 10 and, and 40 people died in an apartment fire in northwestern uh, Xinjiang, or Xinjiang, which is in northwestern China. And the fire chief didn't help matters by saying a few days afterwards that they should have tried harder to get out. Uh, simultaneously, uh, Chinese soccer fans saw attendees at the World Cup not wearing masks. And that kind of uh, put into question, I guess, a lot of the propaganda they'd been hearing about how great everything was in China and how bad everything was outside of China. But really underneath, it was probably three years of fairly strict COVID management, uh, lockdowns, testing of fish, spraying apartments, and other things that the WHO and really the world scientific community says are just not scientifically relevant to fighting COVID. They're more political tools. Uh, and, and people just seem to get tired of it. In my WeChat, Peng Yuchen, it's sort of like a Facebook uh, feed. I've seen a lot of quotes from Michael Jackson songs as they don't really care about us. It's one of the one of many memes actually going around. Um, and as we know, Looking forward, as we know, 1989 didn't end well. The government brought in the military tanks and the soldiers and basically killed the protesters and then scrubbed uh, at least the real factual mention of that from the history books. But what will happen this time? Is there going to be a tipping point or does nothing really matter because Xi Jinping has absolute power or will the government kind of thread the needle and, and bend a little bit to the protesters' demands uh, while also censoring and, and just try to find some happy medium? I don't know these answers. But my guest, Bob Guterma, and a friend of the Early Advantage, he's CEO of the China Project, formerly named, formerly called, excuse me, SubChina, is here with me to discuss. So, Bob, welcome and thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's certainly an exciting time to have my job and to be <laughs> uh, watching China professionally. So I'm always happy to talk about it. Great, great. So I'll, let me hit this from a couple different angles, because there are a few ways we could look at this. First thing is just sort of the, the, the Xi Jinping angle, okay, which a lot of people are talking about, because, you know, China has had protests uh, off and on over the years. It's not that uncommon. It's uncommon to have a big one. They've tended to be more kind of locally based or, you know, someone loses money in a, you know, P2P lending, you know, a fraud or something like that. And so they go protest about that. Uh, this is really the first big and first major ideological protest we've seen since 1989. So it's unique. And I saw a Bloomberg article, the title, I'm just going to read it here. She has few good options, Xi Jinping Ming, to end historic China COVID protests. Um, some people are even protesting for removal of Xi, remove this dictator, you know, we don't want this, um, which is very brave because, you know, you could get in, in deep trouble or go to jail for that in China. But they're, they're taking that risk in a way they wouldn't before. Um, on the other hand, zero COVID is really Xi's baby. It's his calling card. It's the thing he really strongly endorsed personally. And so it would seem a little bit more challenging than the normal with a broader thing for the government to foresee or for the top brass to basically say, oh, you know, this is the problem with just some local officials doing it wrong uh, because it's something that Xi Jinping has really stood for. Um, do you think this dents anything long term or is that kind of a moot question given how much Xi Jinping, how much power he has by now? I don't think that this dents anything long term for him as a leader or for the country of China. I don't think that's because these protests don't matter. I also don't think it's because his grip on power is absolute. 
I think it's because these protests still, despite their novelty and uniqueness, are fairly limited. They are unprecedented in the sense that there have been chants for things like Xi Jinping Xiaotai, which means like step down uh, from power. But at the same time, uh, as, as that is unprecedented, like, like I, want, I want to actually, before moving on, I want to dwell on that for a moment. It is unimaginable up until it happened this weekend yeah. uh, that, that there would be large groups of people in public chanting anything like that, especially naming him by name. Most times in groups of uh, Chinese friends or even sometimes in New York when I'm meeting people who have uh, recently been in China or lived in China or, or are from China, th there's something intense about saying the name Xi Jinping out loud. And, it's and true. Yeah. it kind of like there's almost uh, some subversion going on just by saying it, even if you're saying he's a great leader, <laughs> just to say the name <laughs> is, is often a very tense thing. And, and whenever I'm meeting with someone from China who shares an opinion candidly about him, it almost uh, I take note of it when they say his name out loud, like, oh, they were willing to say his name out loud. Interesting. Cool. We're having a real conversation. This is great. So I don't want to minimize the intensity of what's going on. At the same time, I don't know how ideological the protests really are. You mentioned correctly, and most of the West and most of the Western mainstream media forget that civil unrest is actually pretty common in China, be it at a factory or taxi drivers uh, kind of parking their cars on a bridge to stop traffic if the, the rates aren't keeping up with gas prices or something like that. Uh, the I'm not going to pay my mortgage protests that took place earlier this year. Also earlier this year, large gathering outside regional banks that had essentially bank runs take place and the need for larger, you know, uh, more central government banks to step in and resolve those situations. Civil unrest happens in China a lot. As you mentioned, it's usually for localized or specific issues. These Protests are a little bit more than that in two ways. One, the issue of COVID lockdowns or zero COVID is a uh, nationwide policy for China. So it's not local and it's not just a company or a bank. It is the central government. It does affect everybody. And there are these calls for Xi Jinping to Xiaotai or, or other similar things like that, you know, directed at the government. And yet, are they ideological? Are they advocating for some specific other leader or some other faction or some other party or some other governmental ideology to replace it? No, they're not. I think they're trying to send a message that we are so pissed off that we are becoming emboldened. And we really need to be heard on this issue. We feel like there's a massive disconnect between the central government and us, which, by the way, isn't often the case in China. Authoritarian and single party regimes need to be very responsive to the people because they don't have the election cycle and the election system to provide natural resolution to disagreements. You know, if they over tense uh, the relationship, over tension the relationship between their people and them, uh, you know, it's a binary outcome. You know, there's no um, every four years uh, Congress trades hands type of deal. So the fact that the central government is so out of touch with the people and sort of ramming this uh, COVID zero policy down everyone's throats is, is unique. And people are basically saying, we need to be heard on this. I don't think they're actually advocating for some specific alternative to be put in place. Therefore, is it ideological or is it single issue? Uh, I think it's single issue.
I think it's a it's a fair assessment. I, you know, I don't think they're quite. I mean, maybe a few are questioning the the broader system, but it's really through that lens of hey, I've been I've been in lockdown hell for 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 so long, and there's no sign of of no light at the end of the tunnel, and it sucks. Um, speaking yeah, of zero I, COVID, I, just, I mean, let's let's put the ideology. Go ahead. I was going to just jump in because something you said triggered another thought. Is as much as I do believe it's not ideological in the sense that they want another ideology or option to replace it. I do think that there is an aspect of the emperor has no clothes here. You know, it's like the the COVID zero policy has long been touted as an example of why China's governance system is superior to that of the West. And I think that that idea is just farcical at this point. I'm also not suggesting that America or anybody else handled the pandemic better than China did. We we took our drubbings earlier on in the game, it turns out, and, and they're you know, uh, taking their drubbings. Now, I don't know if it's clear if any governance system is better or worse when it comes to handling the pandemic. And at any rate, the narrative that theirs is superior is falling apart. And so that does uh, deal a blow of sorts to Xi Jinping. And I think the people are now, maybe they were drinking the Kool-Aid of the propaganda the past couple of years. Look how good we have it compared to America Look how good we have it compared to Europe. Our government handled the pandemic. Anyone who was thinking that way and maybe getting on the nationalism train uh, probably is trying to get off that train right now because it's clear that um, this is a multi-inning game and we don't even know what inning we're in. Are we in the second inning or the seventh or eighth inning or is the game almost over? So how do we judge who's winning or losing in something this complex? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a, a fair point. I mean, a lot of people, my Chinese friends in the past, really believe things were worse here, and it's just hard for them to reconcile. Um, and I was going to do some some live coverage for Chinese TV of you know a big event with forty thousand attendees, and they saw the people not wearing masks, and they canceled it. You know, I mean that that they just didn't know. The people in China didn't know, and, and now they're starting to realize, and they're starting to question. I think you're right. They they previously assumed, yes, we have a strict government, but ultimately it has our best interests at heart. And I think now there's at least a question mark. Maybe not everybody has decided, but at least there's a question mark about that in some people's minds. But let me go back to zero COVID. Um, and you're absolutely right. The U.S. was not any shining star or, or Europe. UK. I mean, there's no like, I mean, COVID kind of brought out the worst in everybody uh, for the most part, I, I think, in, in terms of governance. But uh and the U.S. was kind of saved by technology. The West was saved by technology, by the virus. And that's what I want to ask about. Zero COVID, to its credit, was looking like a success in the very beginning for China. People were saying, hey, this is now the time when this authoritarian rule really come to, comes into its own. You know, when you got to make everybody lock down and, and, and tough it out to, to fight the virus, now it's having its day. And so that 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 was great in the beginning. Obviously, now things have shifted substantially. And I read a Singaporean study that said the Sinovac vaccine um, is, I mean, people who take that are five times more likely to develop severe COVID symptoms than those who, who take a, a Western vaccine, a Pfizer or a Moderna one. Um, now, to be fair to China, if they suddenly didn't lock down, you know, Chinese hospitals, and I'm guessing you know this too, Bob, I mean, they are madhouses. You know, doctors do 130, 140 patients a day. You know, you get two or three minutes with a person, and even that is distracted. People elbowing in. I mean, it's it's insane. And their systems just couldn't handle, you know, a sudden deluge of patients. But at the same time, my question for you is: How much of this is just related to the fact that China largely refused to allow in the the Western mRNA vaccines that that work a lot better? 
It's a good question. I think vaccination rates are, I don't know if any one issue is at the center of the problem for China right now, but vaccines would have to be as close to the center as any other issue. If you look at vaccination rates for people over 60 years old, it, they're pretty low. I think it, it's less than 60% of people over the age of 60 or 65 have their third shot. That third shot being critical for protection against Omicron. The two shots, again, look, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm just reading stuff that you all can read in, in the newspapers as well. But summing it up, you know, the two shots are good for the older versions of COVID to protect against the Omicron variant. You really need one of the updated booster shots. Most older folks in China haven't gotten those yet. And you get into these questions of why. And I don't know how much of it has to do with China saying we're only going to honor or acknowledge domestically developed vaccines versus the mRNA versions from overseas, uh, as it does to do with just traditional Chinese culture, traditional Chinese views on medicine and health and vaccines in general. And uh, perhaps ironically, the success of COVID zero up till now, if COVID was pretty close to zero in most places, then why do I need to get vaccinated? <laughs> if you're an older person who is maybe predisposed just, you know, the on the against side of the center of the spectrum against vaccines, like you're just kind of like, I'm not that into vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm not super into them either. Like, and then you're like, but there is no COVID, so why should I get it? You see, and now you've got the very quickly the reverse, which is it's a problem again, and it is spreading, you know, socially. And uh, now you got to convince all these people to get a vaccine that you weren't hyping to them up till now. Just think of how long we were pressing vaccines, uh, the, the messaging around vaccines in the U.S. for a very long time. They haven't laid that groundwork over there. And they you know, may have hurt themselves by only acknowledging their domestic vaccines. Uh, and then some form of the data may have gotten around China about, you know, foreign vaccines working better. I don't even know if that quote unquote rumor that foreign vaccines work better than domestic ones has really become a big uh, talking point within China. I, I actually don't know. So again, I don't know if this is a domestic versus foreign technology thing so much as it's just a bungled messaging and a very unpredictable development path for the pandemic in China in general. They didn't think they needed the vaccines as a historical culture. They're not into them. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, a prohibitive problem for them to come out of this. How are they going to get all these uh, older folks to comply? Uh, are they going to, on top of everything they've already done, go door to door and mandate vaccines? They might have been able to do that pretty easily earlier on. We mandated vaccines and there was a lot of pushback, but ultimately it got done and it was critical to our opening up. Um, it's going to be hard for them to mandate such stringent and invasive things on top. They've, they've spent their goodwill, essentially. I think that much is clear. They've spent yeah, the mandating other time. stuff like lockdowns, too. Yeah. So it's hard to mandate a second thing after you've mandated the first thing that didn't go so well. Exactly. Um, yeah. So so they're kind of boxed in, really. Um, and, and and, you know, maybe at least. My prediction, and, and it's very hard to make predictions about politics because you're predicting the, the, the whims of literally a few people sometimes, is, is you know, they'll, they'll kind of morph and, and obviously blame the West for whatever they can and then and, and, and maybe ease the lockdown as much as like in, in Urumuchi, they, they, 
they eased it a little bit after that fire because they knew they were going to have an uprising. The thing that, that, that you mentioned earlier, Bob, is totally true that the, the CCP, as well as really any authoritarian government, cares the most about is, is basically staying in power. And so any kind of uprising or potential uprising is like public enemy number or not public. It's it's, you know, enemy to power number one to them. And so I think a lot of people out there may not realize how I mean, the government can be out of touch. Absolutely. And we've seen that uh, multiple times. But very quickly, they moved into Shanghai, you know, very quickly, they moved into those sites and, and, and sent the, the students on an early uh, break. Uh, they are really aggressive about clamping down on any type of unrest. And, and part of that is clampdown is done by like a literal police force style clampdown or, or internet uh, censorship, things like that. But also part of it is done by, you know, kind of gentle appeasement policies that still kind of let them keep face while uh, just not pissing everybody off as much. And this is kind of, I guess, old hat if you're really a China watcher. But if you're not watching this show, I mean, this is the traditional playbook. You find kind of the the lowest level you know, you find somebody to blame that, that's not you. Generally, someone, oh, the, the, you know, that guy didn't implement things right. And we saw this happen with the early days of COVID. You know, Dr. Lee Winley on the guy who was trying to warn people. And at first he was a bad guy. And suddenly he was a good guy uh, once they realized that popular support was so strongly on his side. So that model, I think <clears throat> they'll try to implement it as best they can. But it is a little bit trickier because this policy has sees personal brand on it. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think that... There is a lot to what you're saying. Uh, that said, I, I think we should expect some some response from. We've already begun to see some response from the government. There is this notion that uh, the the Chinese government is completely unresponsive to outside uh, stimuli, be that their own people or uh, their global counterparts in the form of governments of other countries. I, I don't know if that's quite true. In fact, I think they're quite good at responding to domestic issues in particular, and they've even got uh, an entire handbooks or playbooks, if you will, at the district and city levels and the, the provincial levels for, I believe they call it dynamic urban incidents or, or dynamic collective mm -hmm. uh, incidents. I forget the exact term, uh, but you know, it's basically how to handle these types of complicated situations. And uh, let's think about how they handled the situation in Hong Kong a few years ago. First of all, that was orders of magnitude more intense than what's going on in, in Shanghai and other cities in China right now. And so I think this might be one reason why some of the media coverage is a little bit overblown. We're selling it as like a complete refutation of, of the CCP power or a challenge to their power. I, I, I don't, think that's a, a fair statement. Look what happened in Hong Kong. Now that was a challenge to power. I mean, there were Molotov cocktails and barricaded, uh, you know, kind of street armored up groups of people in Hong Kong years ago. Bridges yeah, and up to a million fire. protesters in a city of 7 million people. Yeah. C correct. I mean, it was just, I mean, that was off the charts compared to anything that we've seen almost in like any country, let alone China. And, and what <laughs> we have right now is not that. Yet even looking at the Hong Kong thing, I think the most interesting thing about what happened in Hong Kong is the relative restraint that the government showed. I mean, the protesters were better armed than the police in most cases, you know, and, and, and 
let me be very clear that I'm not singing the CCP's praises here and I'm not saying they're doing good work or that I agree with their policies. I'm just saying if that same level of violence had played out in any handful of Western countries or specific cities in the US, I think the response would have been much more forceful against the protesters. And, and, and so, you know, China's got this uh, way of monitoring what's going on figuring out if it's spreading, truly spreading like through society and therefore could pose some kind of bigger challenge that gets out of control or whether it can be addressed at the local level through kind of uh, incremental concessions. So there's not going to be a moment where they're like COVID zero is now over because we heard the voice of the people. I don't think that's going to happen, but it might be like, well, the blockade on that road is removed you know, with no explanation, even if it was like, you know, the part of the response to it. And then just like slowly 10 or 20 things like that will kind of combine. And all of a sudden the people will have a lot less to complain about. Um, you know, if you want to play the victim card, you need to be the victim of something. And if the people want to say they're the victim of the government's policies, but the government can figure out which specific parts of their policies cause the greatest um, pain on the people and just kind of stop doing those things. It's going to be real hard for the people to sustain their, their drive to protest. If the most immediate, uh, causes of, of, uh, frustration are removed. And I think that's what we're probably going to see. I don't think we're going to see a wholesale, uh, abandonment of COVID zero. I do think we're going to see small things add up very quickly to a meaningful change in the quality of life for the people who are protesting. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And, and to the Western mind, you know, we tend to focus on the ideology of something for, for a number of different reasons. Uh, in, in China, it tends to be more about the, the pragmatism. Um, and so if the problem is removed, you know, they're, they're happy and or at least relatively happy and they go on with things. Um, you know, people just it's not as complaining of a culture, I guess, for, for many reasons. Uh, speaking of what you said, I mean, it is true. Like, the media, I think, is accurate in some respects that. Currently, the, the the governance is kind of you know is becoming more one sided, more monolithic, more more a certain way. But but it's not entirely, and I think people may not realize how. I mean, there are different branches of Chinese government, and and there's and some can be quite responsive. And economically, um, you know, policymakers can 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 be surprisingly pragmatic. And the stock market has been a a barometer, literally, I mean, it's been down lately. Chinese stocks have been poor performers. They definitely went down after she got you know, reelected for his, his uh, third term, if you will. But by the day, literally, they've gone up. The markets have gone up and down based on uh, the market's predictions of what China is going to do. So they were down a couple of days, as of this recording, down initially during these protests, um, now up because uh, there were rumors or expectations the government is going to make some kind of this response, probably like you're talking about here. Um, how accurate do you think the the stock market is in this case? Are they just kind of guessing or do you think it's a pretty accurate barometer of, of what may actually happen? I will start by saying that I'm not a professional investor or investment advisor. Uh, I do uh, invest as an individual uh, like anyone else, but I know enough about my talent or lack thereof not to take my own predictions very seriously. Uh, so with that disclaimer aside, I will say that uh, the way that I'm thinking about this is not is the upside imminent, 
are there going to be policy changes that unlock uh, a, a rally in Chinese stocks? Although that's a fair question, and, and we can talk about that briefly in a second. But the first question for me is, have we found the bottom? How much further is there for these stocks to go down? In, that, in answering that question, you, you kind of need to think about some fundamentals, just average PE ratios and uh, compared to global benchmarks, how far below those global benchmarks is it right now? Uh, not just the global benchmarks right now, but maybe over a 20, 25 year timeline. Basically, how expensive is the Chinese market right now? If it's looking cheap to you uh, and you think we're probably near the bottom, then I don't know if it matters so much whether right now is the moment when things change. You could start to increase your China exposure with the relative certainty that China doesn't want its markets to always remain the way that they are. And I think that that last point is, is a large part of how I view the Chinese markets in two regards. First of all, we got to remember that Chinese markets, even at their best day in the past year or two, have still been way below their 2007. And then later, uh, I think the next high after 2007 was the absolute high for Chinese yeah. markets. And then 2015, over, they went up again, they crashed. Yeah, correct. Up. And then uh, that's what I was going to say is then there was like another little bit of a peak and then it's back down then. I mean, imagine if US markets were net negative on a 15 or even a five year time period. It's almost unimaginable. What what would we even be talking about? What would everyone's 401k be doing? What would all the pension funds money be doing? You know, so much of our economic system is based on uh, capital markets. This isn't true in China. And their markets have always done fairly poorly. Um, and one has to assume it's because we have the markets as like kind of a sacred thing here, separate from government. The markets are their own thing. They exist for the participants of the market and the government is allowed to regulate them uh, as much as makes sense. But they're really a sacred independent thing in and of themselves. And in China, the markets are a tool in a toolbox alongside taxes, fiscal policy, monetary policy, uh, data policy and any other policy or other tool of government to manage the well-being, uh, prosperity and security of the Chinese nation. They are not a special, sacred, separate thing. And so what we need to look at is what role do markets in China play in the CCP's vision for the country over the next 10 or 20 years? I am not presently, as of like today, read up enough on this topic to give you specific examples of things that so-and-so has said or done recently. But I do know that in the past four or five years, there's been a lot of talk and even a little bit of action concretely continuing to liberalize and open their capital markets, even while they clamp down big time on other forms of global economic participation. Point being that I believe that there is a positive greater than zero signal on the CCP attitude towards capital markets. They want them to be a thing. They want them to be strong. They want them to have a bigger role in global markets than they do currently. 
I don't know if the CCP is taking enough action to actually achieve these goals, but I do believe that they have some ambition for their markets, their capital markets. And as such, one has to assume that they can't continually be inserting these sources of friction and destruction even into their markets. They are going to have to, at the very least, stop adding new sources of friction or destruction and maybe even remove some of them to let the markets uh, flourish a little bit. This is a directional bet that I'm espousing here. I don't have a specific uh, idea of when, how, or even if it will really happen. But my point is, are we at a bottom? And does the CCP want its markets to do better than they've been doing in recent years? And I feel like the answer to both is probably close enough to being yes. Are we at the absolute bottom? Maybe not, but we are way down from wherever we used to be. And is the CCP ready to let the markets have a couple uninterrupted years of good times? I don't know, but one has to assume they want a couple years of good times at some point in the next five to 10 years. And, and between these two things, you might be able to increase your China exposure uh, and see what happens. That's a good answer, and it sounds like you're 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 tipping on the on the bullish side. Uh, it sounds like you had some extra money. You might you might consider Chinese investments right now, um, and I, I think it's good a to small mention portion. that. Mark, it's not where I'm going to put my nest egg <laughs> by any means, but you know, diversify no, portfolio. Smart. That's smart. Blah blah blah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're correct to mention that markets are part of the CCP's grand design, even though they don't always seem like it. Um, the I guess the the collision course, at least in my mind, or, or the 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 dilemma is that. You know, China wants markets. They want or at least the benefits of markets, you know, capital coming in and, and there's a lot of healthy economic benefits. But, you know, they, they also want control and, and to operate in, in basically a low trust way. And, and, and that's where you kind of get into a zero sum game. I mean, it is, at some point it becomes hard to have it both ways. They're kind of they're actually doing a better job than I would expect it of walking that line. Um, but but at some point, you know, a lot of people have backed away because they don't trust, but there are also opportunists who have come in. And we, those are the day traders, people we see in, as soon as you see a, a positive announcement of, of a little bit of a loosening, the money comes back in. They're hoping to capitalize on that. Um, you know, it's interesting to me as, as in a markets guy. I mean, there's not really a direct parallel in the West for, for the forces at play. I mean, it's so much more determined by, by the whims of the government. And we saw this years ago in 2015 or 16 with the currency markets, like they would even, the government would even post like little like threatening or just, you know, taunting messages like try shorting the you know, try, try shorting the RMB. We'll show you, you know, something like that, which you'd never see in the West. So they were they were taking it personally. They were. But that's that's an economic reality. Also, they're willing to deploy money uh, along those, uh, you know, fairly whimsical lines by by some standards. Uh, and that's just, you know, just how it is. So uh, I don't know. It's hard to predict uh, if. If, if the government doesn't intervene, I could see things getting worse if it becomes like North Korea. If the government says, wait, 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 you know, we, we need these capital market benefits um, just the same way they need trade benefits. Right. I mean, for all the spats, you know, U.S., China uh, negative news we see. These two countries are still huge trading partners, uh, huge. And, and, and that, in a way, is a positive bridge, keeping things from getting worse because they, they sort of need each other to that extent. hundred and something billion China buys from the U.S., you know, 500 billion or so U.S. buys from China. Um, that's big money. So I think markets kind of work the same way and, and the government will try its hardest to walk that fine line. But, you know, again, yeah. um, you know, what do I know? Uh, just watching. There's two things I'll add to this um, as we kind of get towards the end of thinking about you know how, how to 
with, without getting into a two hour additional conversation, getting into the details, you know, two <laughs> last things I, I can add here. Um, one is, and I'll, I said this a little bit a few minutes ago, but I'll say it again. I, I would consider any money that's exposed heavily to China or specifically to China to be at risk. It, it is risk capital in my mind because there still is non-negligible possibility of exogenous shock. Just something goes wrong with Taiwan. Uh, something goes wrong within the upper ranks of the CCP. Xi Jinping's behavior becomes more erratic. Maybe um, a Republican Speaker of the House uh, goes to Taiwan as his first big trip and you know, the live exercises that took place all around Taiwan when Pelosi went a few months ago uh, look like tiddlywinks compared to whatever happens next. You know, there's all kinds of just random things that can get set off by any number of events waiting out there. And I think China markets um, are more susceptible to that than Western markets, again, because they are part and parcel of the CCP's economic system, whereas our markets are sort of their own independent thing, very correlated with U.S. politics and policy and stuff, but not uh, lockstep. You know, they could still thrive even while politics uh, festers. And, and I don't know if the tr same is true in China. The second thing uh, worth mentioning We've, we've talked about how dependent the markets there are on policy. And I think there's uh, two policies or, or uh, kind of categories of policy <laughs> that may make it hard for a foreign investor to make a lot of money in China, actually, even if their markets do better in the near future. One policy comes from China, one comes from the US. The China policy is more of a general intention that risk capital and market capital will flow towards deep technology, <laughs> semiconductors, automation, robotics, aerospace, healthcare, not consumer trends or uh, Bitcoin or uh, finance or fintech or these other things that have prevailed in the past five to 10 years of venture capital and venture backed startups in China and the US. Um, they really want to excel at quote unquote real technology. They don't want all this funny money and free money flowing to these uh, otherwise kind of frivolous or not core to the survival of the nation type things. They want to become a more powerful nation. They want the money to go there. So those parts of the market may be primed to do very well. However, the second policy from the U.S. is one of trying to cordon off exactly those things. You know, the, the export controls on semiconductors that were announced at the beginning of October, um, the growing number of Chinese companies that are on various entity lists or other uh, kind of uh, formal or informal sanctions lists or blacklists, companies that Western uh, money is either discouraged from or outright uh, prohibited from flowing into. And so, <coughs> excuse me, you may have trouble finding an appropriate opportunity set between those two policies. The things the Chinese government wants to succeed are the exact things that the U.S. government doesn't want Western money funding. And so your opportunity set may get pretty narrow there. Uh, something to point out uh, if, if someone were going to actually sit down and try and um, take a hypothesis into a planning stage, you need to bear in mind these two trends and see what's left in the middle part of that Venn diagram.
And that's a good point. And a lot of the, the traditional first steps of entry for, for Westerners investing in China would be the big tech companies, Alibaba, you know, Jingdong. Um, and, and those are getting increasing scrutiny in, in the U.S. too. the big tech firms. Everybody's looking more carefully now. Uh, and, and so that's probably not as shining of a star as it was before. Uh, Bob, uh, thank Bob Guterman, CEO now of sub, or the, the China Project. I says a formerly sub China, now the China Project. You can find them at thechinaproject.com and we'll put that uh, on the notes below this show. Uh, Bob, thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You got deep insights and I know I learned a lot and I hope those watching at home learned something too. Thanks, James. Always happy to come on and um, I'll hopefully be back soon. Hi, I'm Brian Christopher. Sometimes assets fall in value like stocks in 2022. It doesn't really matter what kind of stock it is. Nearly all of them are weaker. Except for energy, all of the sectors in the S&P 500 index are down this year. But what if the market overreacted with some of these names and threw the poor baby out with the bathwater? Let's find out. To assess this, I ran a search for UK, US, and Canadian companies with a current market cap greater than $500 million. I sought names with a total return worse than negative 50% this year, meaning they're still big, but they were much bigger. I also wanted the companies to be profitable, so I reduced the search to the names with positive free cash flow over the past three years. In general, companies that were profitable in 2020 either benefited from COVID or are resilient. I further reduced the list to companies that had positive revenue growth over the past five years. This cut the list to 19 names. That's a solid starting point. And when you do this analysis, you have to be open-minded. This list of 19 names won't result in 19 buys. Many of these names are down for good reason. Ferexpo PLC, Ticker FXPO in London is the world's third largest exporter of iron ore pellets. That's not bad. Unfortunately, it produces from the Ukraine. If you have knowledge of an upcoming ceasefire, this may be a great name to buy. It also can get cheap enough, but otherwise I could understand your lack of willingness to buy this one. Fulgent Genetics, ticker FLGT in the U.S., is a diagnostic company, but you can see how it grew recently via a Google search. It grew because of COVID. Now it's pulling back to its core size. Whether they'll be successful in reinvigorating revenue post COVID will require more digging. But one name stuck out. It met all of our criteria and one more. Insiders recently bought into the weakness Regulars know, I believe, the willingness of management, directors, and big owners of shares to reach into their own pockets to buy more shares is important in evaluating a stock. That's what we have with DISH Network, ticker D-I-S-H on the NASDAQ. Some might call DISH a value trap. Its current market cap is below $10 billion at about $8.3 billion. It hasn't been below $10 billion at the end of a calendar year, since 2010. And that's not all. Free cash flow was at least a billion dollars every year from 2007 all the way through last year, but it's down to 600 million during the year ended in September. 
So what is co-founder and director Jim DeFranco buying into? Why did he reach into his pocket and spend $40 million on shares from May to September of this year? I believe he sees a company that has largely been de-risked. In the first quarter of 2023, Dish expects to launch Boost Infinite in more than 25 markets. Dish already owned the satellite Dish TV and streaming Sling TV services. Then in 2020, Dish bought Boost Mobile and became a nationwide US wireless carrier. Today, management says Boost Infinite is the first virtualized open RAN 5G broadband network. Dish has built more than 10,000 towers that reach over 35% of the US population. About 1,000 towers are going live each month. Dish plans to reach 70% of the country when all is said and done. Proponents say the open RAN architecture is cost-effective and also appeals to markets that demand higher speeds. Boost Infinite can be a success for a couple main reasons. One, because Dish has done this before. When it launched Satellite TV in 1998-1999, people were skeptical. Fast forward to today, and the market is skeptical about Dish's 5G offering. Dish paid to create it. That's why its capital expenditures are up and free cash flow is down. But that is temporary. The expenditures will soon be behind them. And more importantly, people want options. More wireless options are better for consumers and should be good for Dish. If Dish's network is successful, I believe shares could double or triple from here. And even if it isn't that successful or you're a shorter term trader, Dish could offer a few dollars of upside from current levels. I suggest you look into it today. To be clear, this isn't for the faint of heart. Raising money to build out its network in this environment has risk, but Dish's management team has done it before and is betting on its own success. Thank you for watching.